Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stephanie. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we pause our hearts before you this morning. As we come to your word, Lord, we have sung praises to you. We have heard your word read. We have prayed. We have brought our gifts and our offerings and our tithes to you. And Lord, now we would pause as we come to your word that you tell us over and over is like a surgeon's scalpel, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts all the way down to the core of who we are. Lord, nothing else in our lives does that. Nothing else in our lives has that power. Lord, we need to be healed. We need to be changed. We need to be transformed. So we pray that somehow through the miracle of your spirit, you would come and use your powerful word upon our hearts. Would you come and be our teacher? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, kids, last week I started with a question. I think it's a good question. I wanted to start again this week. That really gets us into the subject of what we're talking about in our series. So have you ever said... Maybe at school, maybe at home, maybe in relationships with family, brothers, sisters, classmates. Have you ever said, that's not fair? Show of hands, you ever said that? Okay, finally they're going up very closely, very slowly rather. You know, the reality is, uh, we know when we're being treated unfairly. I mean, it's like... We have an amazing sensor and detection built deep within us that we know somehow from the earliest age that we deserve to be treated with fairness. I didn't have to teach that to my children. My little girl May is two years old and when uh, a sibling takes something that she has in her hands from her, she screams bloody murder because she knows this is not right. That is mine. And so this concept of fairness that's just kind of deeply woven into our being and who we are is the concept of justice. This question of what is right. And now in our culture today, and this is a part of the reason I'm wanting to do this sermon series in the Bible, in our culture today, in our world all around us, There is so much about justice. We hear so much on the media, in social media, in conversations around the water cooler, in all kinds of different places that we are. So many discussions today are about what is right. 
What should the world be like? What, how should we treat certain groups of people? How should a government, what should a government prioritize and stand for? I mean, all of these things are really front and center of what we're talking about right now. And in our particular moment, you know, we're in a political season here. I cannot wait until November's over. But I'm not so sure it's going to die down after that because our culture is so divided and polarized. And the thing to see is that the polarization is over what is justice. They're competing views of justice, of what's right. And so we find ourselves in this moment where there's, there's so many of these conversations taking place all around us. And my concern for us as a church and really for the broader body of Christ is that our view of justice of what's right is shaped more by the voices of our culture than by God's Word. That's just my concern I'm just throwing out there. And a part of what I'm wanting as we look at this theme in Scripture of biblical justice is I'm wanting us to really be rooted in and develop an understanding of what is biblical justice. How does God define justice? Now here's what I think we're going to find as we continue to go through this series. We're going to find that God's view of justice and biblical justice will oftentimes confront our own view of justice. It might even confront our particular political party. Now the reality is right now in our culture there's like two options. The right and the left. Blue and red. Republican, Democrat. And so you got to pick one of those sides to define justice. And what I want us to see as we go and we look at God's Word is that it's not just two options. As we see this concept of biblical justice, we're going to see Scripture calling out all sides and calling us to something that cannot be fully contained in an earthly political party. That's what I hope we'll see as we go through this series. So here we're jumping in. We're really looking at one verse today, though I'm going to jump off and, and look at another one. But last week I introduced this word that I want us to see in this word, this particular Hebrew word is in our passage today in Jeremiah 22. Now I'm picking a verse here, but let me, let me tell you, one of the hardest things each week for me has been picking a verse. Because as we're talking about biblical justice, literally the, the scriptural content that speaks to this is just massive. I've got all these post-it notes all over my office where I'm like, ah, which one do we look at? Which one do we focus at? It's so hard because I want you to get a sense that this theme, this word is everywhere in Scripture. If you get our weekly email... I put uh, a verse in this past week, and I'm going to do this each week, put in a, a, a verse in addition to what we're looking at on Sunday morning. I want to give you a verse each week that I want to ask you to be meditating on, to be memorizing. And part of the reason I want to do that is because I want to get this concept that's so scriptural, I want to get it down into our bones. The only way to do that is to read the Bible is to study God's Word. So it's just, it's my effort to get Scripture into our hearts. So I want to encourage you to do that. You two kids, I want you all looking at that verse each week. But here we are in, in Jeremiah chapter 22. 
verse 3. And here's, in, in our verse here, there is two words that are used that we find all over Scripture and we find them paired together. Now, if you're looking at the NIV here, you're not going to see um, the best rendering of these words, okay? So, look at verse 3. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, you're going to see something that's a little bit closer to the original. But here's what the NIV says that we read earlier. This is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, what it says is, do justice and righteousness. Now, both translations are trying to get at two Hebrew words. The first one is the one that we really focused on last week, and it's mishpat. Everybody try it. Let's try to pronounce it. Let's try to say it. Everybody say mishpat. Huge biblical concept. This word occurs well over 200 times in Scripture, and the concept that it refers to appears over 400 times. I mean, it's just literally a critical theme to understand in Scripture. Now, the, the most direct translation of it is our English word justice. It's what mishpat means. It means to do justice. Now, one of the problems with the English there is that for us, that's a narrow kind of word for us. Whenever we think of the word justice, what do we think? We think of punishing wrongdoing. We think, if I were to steal $50 from you, justice in that situation would be for me to have to pay back $50 and maybe restitution for your time and troubles. There's justice. That's how we think of it. We think about a courtroom. We think about punishing wrongdoing. Now, here's the thing to see. That concept is included in Mishpat. There's many places in Scripture where Mishpat refers to that, to uh, righting a wrong, uh, to paying back something that has been wronged, okay? But Mishpat is broader as we see it here. It also refers to taking up the cause of the most vulnerable in society. Mishpat includes making our cause those who've been wronged. Caring for the vulnerable. We, we saw last week in our passage last week these particular groups of people that get mentioned over and over and over in Scripture. Uh, one theologian has called them the quartet of the vulnerable. These four groups of people that show up over and over and over in Scripture. Orphans, widows, the poor, and immigrants or aliens, refugees. A lot of discussion about that in our culture today. But these four groups of people... We see them popping up over and over and over in Scripture related to Mishpat. And so according to Scripture, Mishpat involves taking up their case, making their cause my cause, bringing them protection, working to reverse things in culture and society that take advantage of those people. From the perspective of the Bible, these groups of people are the most vulnerable they're the easiest to take advantage of because they don't have a lot of social power and social standing. And so throughout history, these groups of people are the ones that most often are taken advantage of or oppressed. And so Mishpat, according to Scripture, is taking up their cause, getting involved in their life. Look at even what he says here. Do what is just and right. Now look at this description of Mishpat. 
works. The, the rest of the verse is a description of what he means by due justice and righteousness. Look at what he says. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or do not mistreat the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. You see, the focus there for Mishpat and justice is coming alongside these vulnerable people. Widows, orphans, aliens. That's what it means to do Mishpat. Nine out of ten times, when you see Mishpat in Scripture, it is referring to that. Now what's interesting is that it's paired here with this other word that is sedekah. Okay, so we're going to try that one, okay? Say sedekah. So this is another Hebrew word that we find throughout Scripture that is most rightly translated righteousness. And that's what it's referring to here. So, so often, mishpat and righteousness are paired together. Now, here's an interesting thing. As we think about righteousness, it's a big religious word. As you think about righteousness, what do we naturally think about? I think what we naturally think about is like individual righteousness. You know, like personal morality. You know, to be righteous means I'm a person that, um, you know, I'm sexually chaste in my life and I uh, avoid certain things in my life. Maybe we think righteousness is, is somebody that doesn't cuss or it's uh, somebody that doesn't um, um, do certain behaviors in life. You know, I, I use the phrase, I don't drink, smoke, or chew or run with those who do. In the Bible Belt, that's kind of the, the whole sum of righteousness. I'm someone who avoids certain behaviors in my life. And then I have some good things that I do in my life. We might think of it's, it's personal devotion. You know, I'm someone who has uh, discipline and a prayer life and studying God's Word and I go to church. And, and that's what we think of whenever we think of righteousness. When we say, be a righteous person. Well, I know what that means. It means avoid these things and be a good person. But here's what's interesting. In Scripture, though it includes those things, those are all good. Though it includes those, primarily righteousness in Scripture is relational. So often righteousness has to do with how I treat another person. You know, we just got done looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now look at the Sermon on the Mount and walk through in all the ways that Jesus calls us to, to live in this life. How many of those are about how we treat another human being? Almost every single one of them. Even the Ten Commandments. You know, as we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of them being very private. Like, you know, do not lie, for instance. But actually, the Ninth Commandment doesn't say do not lie. It says do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Even the Ten Commandments are fundamentally social. So I think that's a huge shift for us. It certainly has been in my own life. As I naturally think about righteousness, you know, be a righteous person, I'm like, okay, keep my nose clean, you know, be this privately good moral person. But in Scripture, it is relational. One, my uh, Hebrew professor had a great definition of righteousness that I've that really, I think, ever since I've been trying to internalize and learn. But here was his definition 
of tzedakah and righteousness. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community. Disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community. You see how social it is? You see how relational it is? You see how it's all about how I treat other people? Another way to put that is that a righteous man or woman, a righteous man or woman is willing to wound themselves and hurt themselves and disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community around them. That is what Zedekiah is all about. So what's interesting is when you get justice and righteousness paired together and, and over 36 times in the Old Testament they are put right together because they're near synonyms. So one, one theologian says when you put them together the best rendering is social justice. Now, that might not be a, a word that we like. And now I realize that term right now has got so many connotations to it. I mean, there are visions of social justice in the culture today and there's so much argument over what does that look like. And, and I think for many of us in the church, that's a word that we want to avoid, that we want to get away from because we know that the way that it's used uh, it might not be the best way. But here's the thing that I want us to see. Even if you don't like the word social justice, that's what mishpat is. It is justice worked out socially in our relationships, in our community. That is what righteousness is. Let me just share, I've shared an example of this before of a church really living this out. It's very compelling, but... It's a story about the church, uh, uh, the church at Brook Hills. It's a church in Birmingham. Uh, it's a, it was um, formerly pastored by David Platt, a very uh, kind of well-known uh, teacher, preacher in our culture. He wrote the book Radical. But uh, he was a pastor of this church, Church of the Brook Hills. Uh, it was a mega church. Uh, in a very affluent uh, area of Birmingham. It was a very good church, you know, really big, had all the, the programs and, and just really doing good stuff. And so David Platt was at this church and he just began to have this burden and began to process it with his church. And, and they began to have this conversation that, I, you know, I'm afraid that we are more interested in chasing the American dream than we are for living out God's vision for His kingdom. And that just began to be a burden that they began to wrestle with. And they began to say, wait a minute, as we look at our budget, as we look at our lives, you know, we're investing everything just within our church. It's all about the new and beautiful buildings. It's all about the great programs that we have. And, and really, so often, our, our Christianity, our following Jesus, doesn't cost us anything. It, it, Jesus becomes an add-on to our life, which is primarily about upward mobility, maximizing happiness in life. That is the American dream. And the challenge in the American church is that that has become melded with Jesus. And as we look at the words of Jesus, it is shocking how in opposition He stands to maximizing personal happiness. 
So they begin to wrestle with this as a church and, and, and really begin to think, what can we do? So David Platt calls up the Shelby County Defects Department. He just, in a whim, he's like, all right, I'm calling. He calls him up and he gets the director on the phone and he said, how many families do you need to meet your entire need for all the children in need of homes in the foster care system? And she laughed at him. She thought it was a joke. A pastor calling me to, yeah, right. She had seen very few pastors come to her and say, how can we participate? And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. It's an honest question. How many families would it take to meet your entire need? And he had to convince her for a little while that he really was serious. And then finally she said, okay, if there were a miracle, 150 families would entirely eradicate our need. And he said, okay, I'll call you back. The next week he goes back to church. And he shares this need with the congregation. And they've been in process really wrestling with their lives. And what does following Jesus cost me? And 160 families signed up to be a part of this need. And literally, they fulfilled the entire need of Shelby County for homes for children. That just blows me away to think about that. It's just stunning. And the reason it's so stunning to me is because I know, especially with a thing like this, it wasn't just a program they were signing up to go do on a Saturday morning. As I think about that, I'm like, this impacted their life. We've got a few families in here that have done or are doing foster care. And I've been close enough to them to know, like, this changes your whole life. And so that's stunning to me. How would these families go from, I mean, let's face it, they got it, they got it pretty good in life. Why would they come to a point of disadvantaging themselves for people they don't even know, for people that can't offer them anything? How'd that get into them? How'd they decide to do that? You know, because as I think about that, the real barrier, I think, to doing mishpat, especially as we start to really look at what does this look like, is what it costs us. I mean, really, do I want righteousness to cost me? You know, it's not natural to us to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. It's just not in our natural GPS. It's not how we move. What's natural for us, just human nature, is upward mobility. You know, I want to go to a nicer house and a nicer school for my children and a nicer neighborhood. You know, I want to move away from need and move away from hardship. That's what's natural in our world. It's even celebrated. It's seen as success. But this interesting thing in Scripture that we're called to this downward mobility chosen downward mobility for the sake of the community is stunning and as I wrap my mind around it a part of what makes me recoil just to be honest is my own heart I don't want to I don't want to pay that cost I mean let's be honest we don't have time for mishpat do we because our life is so filled with good things. 
justice and righteousness will cost us. And so the ultimate question for us is, where do we get the motivation and the energy and the desire to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community? Where do you get that? Where did the church of the Brook Hills get this? Where are we going to get this? Where am I going to get this? And you know the answer is the same every week. It's the gospel. You know, it's the radical grace of the gospel of Jesus is penetrating our heart. It actually begins to create a downward momentum in our life. Because that is the gospel. The gospel is downward mobility for me. That is the story of Jesus. That He saw my vulnerability. I mean, the gospel shows me that I am poor. I am needy. I am by nature an alien. I'm, I'm outside of God by nature. That's the reality I'm born into. I'm, I'm, I wasn't born into His family. I'm an alien to Him. And my spiritual poverty literally is so outrageous, I can't even fathom it. The depth of my need of God's constant grace to wash me and pursue me is just beyond my comprehension. And yet the Gospel invites us to see that. Our outrageous need, and yet in seeing the full reality of our hearts, Jesus chose downward mobility. You know what's so amazing is that Jesus didn't send out prayers for us. Jesus didn't send us money. Jesus didn't send us some programs to fix the reality of our brokenness. Now those things can be good, but what did Jesus do? He moved into my life. It's incarnation. At tremendous cost to Himself, He came down into the brokenness of our lives, taking upon Himself. And even the ultimate culmination of His humiliation for us, yielding up His life on a shameful cross. That is righteousness. That is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of the community of me and of you. And so see, as that radical grace begins to penetrate our hearts, it leads you to do justice. It's just the inevitable result. And Jesus taught that over and over. You know, the, the presence of justice in your life is an indicator of your understanding and receiving of God's radical grace for you. You know, sometimes in the church, we get afraid of social justice. We get afraid of a social gospel. And so what we want to do is we want to focus on let's just preach the gospel and not get involved in all of these things. You see, the reality is the true gospel will inevitably move us out to do justice in the world. So let me stop there and just give us a few minutes to interact over this and discuss it together. How does this impact you? challenge you, confuse you. I realize these are really new concepts for many of us in how we think of Christianity. Uh, I'd really love to, for us to, to just hear from each other.
And I was short on the sermon, so we have plenty of time to be silent if you want to just meditate. Um, if we could, yeah. Sure, that'd be tremendous. A lot of times, I think especially for us, we probably don't see ourselves as affluent, but we are in the most affluent culture in all of human history, and that's a blessing. But our instinct is to give money rather than give myself. So I totally identify with that. And how do you give yourself in the COVID reality? That's, that's a great question. Hard. Other thoughts? My biggest uh, fear that bubbles up is how will, will this will this hurt my family if mm. I was to do yes if I was to put myself out if I was really to put my family out there yeah I think of it especially in terms of foster care but yeah but any of any of it really yeah <clears throat> I appreciate that Trent I mean. That's probably, for those of us who are parents, that's one of the biggest barriers, uh, whether it be foster care, whether it be, you know, choosing to move towards something hard. Uh, you know, I think in our culture, it is so, it's so natural for us to love our children. That's a good thing. That's something that Scripture wants. The danger for us in our culture is to make idols of our children. So they become ultimate in our life. And so we're also a culture that is just obsessed with safety and security. And so we put that ahead of doing justice. And, you know, the irony is I think we actually hurt our children when we do that. Because we might think, be thinking of their physical safety, but not of what I think we really want for our children, that is to love Jesus and to love his kingdom. And that's not going to happen unless mom and dad love Jesus and love his kingdom. You know, for our children, they are going to catch their values more than be taught their values. It's from what we do as parents. And I, I find that instinct a lot in the church that we want, we want someone else to teach our children. And if somebody else is teaching my children about Jesus, but I'm not, and even more importantly, I'm not passionate about Jesus and His kingdom, they're not going to be. But that really is where the rubber meets the road. It's a cost, a scary cost for parents that love their children. And, um, you know, it's Jesus, 
saying, it is gain. When you lose for me, it is gain for you and your children. And that's, that's hard to believe. But the faith is all about stepping into it. But I identify 100%. I mean, we're, we're called to hard things, right? I mean, we're called, I mean, I try not to, we all sacrifice something. And Jesus said we're to love him more than we love our kids, Yeah. to love our parents. He's yeah. above everything. Mm-hmm. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to be, if you truly want the dust of the rabbi, you want to follow him that close that the dust is upon you, you're going to suffer and you're going to, it's not easy fostering. It's not easy adopting. It's not easy. It's easy being comfortable neglecting the duties that we're called to. Mm-hmm. And so we're called to suffer and give ourselves up for other people. And on, it's so hard for to sit back and see, I mean, and, and not do those things, you know, but we're called to those things. Yeah. And if we just have faith and believe and trust in what he's called us to. It's yeah. even though it's hard. Yeah, it really is. And, but he's going to provide. I mean, there's yeah. so many countless stories I can tell of how the Lord has provided for us in the times where it was so hard. You know, money, food, and with the kids. I mean, it's it's time. It's time for us as a body to to get out of your comfort zone and do those hard things. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think Wade had something to share. Thank you, Michael. I think it's easy to think about the hard part of it all on the front end. But as you take that step of faith, wow, the joy that comes with that. Yeah. Um, just through the adoption, uh, fostering adoption of our daughter, uh, I, yeah, there was some hard times. Yeah. But whew, the joy yes. is just so much greater. Yeah. You know, seeing her have a grandbaby. Mm. Yeah. Whew, mm. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think so much of it is. That's, thank you, Wade. I think so much of it is that because, you know, we're constantly hearing the lie of our culture is you you only live once, you only go around once, so you got to live it up now. You got to have all the experiences now. You know, have your bucket list, live for experience and possessions and all that stuff. Live for it now, and don't avoid suffering and don't lose. Don't give up your life. And it's, it's so easy to believe that. That's like the logic of our flesh. It's not hard for me to believe that. But then there's Jesus' promise that if you lose your life, you are going to gain it. Like, it is better. When you give, you are actually going to receive more. It's fuller. It's more satisfying. That's what... Jesus is saying Jesus is not trying to take away from us. He's trying to give us life. It's just that we're so confused about what really gives life. And that's the amazing thing is when you step out in faith, it's got to start with faith. Like, 
this looks like a terrible idea, but I'm going to go for it, and I'm just going to trust I'm going to meet Jesus on the other side. And you get on the other side, and you're like, man, that was so fulfilling. So we have to be a community that reinforces that in each other, that like celebrates when somebody takes a risk or disadvantages themselves or downward mobility. That ought to be like celebrated stuff in the church. Hutch, would you go over that thing that Elliot says? I can't remember it right now. Uh, Jim Elliot? Yes, yeah. It's one of my favorite quotes. Jim Elliot, who was uh, martyred by the Alca Indians in Ecuador, he had written in his, his, um, his personal journal, I think it was the day that he went out to make contact with this tribe, the day that he was martyred, he had written in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It was just a restatement of Jesus saying, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but if you lose your life from me, you'll gain it. And it was it. You're in the world when we when we lose, when we give up life, the world looks at us and says, You're a fool. You're a fool. People will look at us if we make downward mobility kind of choices and they'll say, You're a fool. And most of the time they're gonna say, You're a, you're mistreating your children. And so we need to be so rooted in God's truth to say, No, no, no. No, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what we can never lose. And we can never lose the kingdom. It's unshakable. It's going to last forever. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> how, do you, um, how do you balance giving and taking downward mobility and, and doing that? And that's fine, but also balancing that with your finitude. Um, I don't really understand that because at some point there's balance only so much you what? can I didn't hear that one word. Your finitude. Oh, finitude. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. So this is why it's so important to work this out in community, I think, because it's possible for your kind of way of doing the Christian life to, to, to begin to think the more I play the martyr and give and all of this stuff, the more God's going to love me. And to begin to do that, I mean, I think that can be rooted in our hearts a lot. And so we're doing it out of this energy of like, I'm trying to get God's love. And we burn out. And so I think what's helpful is that whenever we're doing it in community, we're, we're able to identify when that's the energy there. Um, there are some of us that think I'm responsible to save people. And I gotta go do this, and I gotta suffer, and I gotta give my life away, and, I, and I'm, I'm always doing it, because deep down I'm just trying to get God to love me. So that's the case for some of us. And so for that, we need the gospel, we need community, we need help. But I think most of us are not that, especially in our culture. Because our culture is a therapeutic culture that is like, you need to protect yourself. You need to have boundaries and, you know, don't let anything press you. Don't make commitments, you know, take care of yourself. And that's just not what Jesus taught, that we gain life. Um, so it's a great question. And um, 
it really matters where where are you personally and it's helpful to work that in community um i just wanted to sort of respond to that to you if i may um as someone who who is like that <laughs> and who like i can remember a moment in high school where i was like on fire for jesus and i was like, yes God is calling me to serve people. All I really love in life is just serving people. I look back on that and I'm like, okay, like, maybe there's some truth, but a lot of it was just this need to prove myself, this need to kind of take, I think, what I naturally, like, wanting to do things on my own, and I kind of stole that from God or tried to steal it from God and said, okay, great, this is the way that I'm going to be a good person and be right before God and before others. Um, And I do think that being, I think every year I am increasingly seeing I am so much less capable than I ever thought I was. Mm -hmm. Like my my finitude, my limitedness is becoming abundantly clear. Um, and, and that's really frustrating because I thought, oh, I thought that this was going to get easier and better as I grew in my faith. Um, but what it has done, and I don't know the answer. I still, there's still part of me that's like, I have a vision of myself someday. Someone who's not afraid of brokenness or discomfort or all of these things. And I hope that God um, brings that about in his own way. But... But being able to say, like, okay, I maybe today I can't, I, I can't move out of my whatever it is I'm struggling with to have a conversation with someone. Um, or maybe I'm not showing up to as many things at church. Um, but I know that my brother or my sister is. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not in the front of the pack, mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. in good works. Yeah. <laughs> Like, there are different seasons where I can step into a hard space because I know that my brother and sister in Christ is struggling and they just can't do it right now. Yeah. But I also, that also means that I receive those times when I look to the person next to me and I'm like, wow, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, I got to go home and take a nap. Yeah. And trusting that that's like, that that's right, mm-hmm. that that's good, that it's honoring them and it's honoring God. Yeah. And it's living out the gospel by being able to depend on those beside me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm in a process of learning that, mm. but that gives me a lot of hope, mm. I guess. Thank you for sharing that, Carrie. Um, what I think is about money, it's I've always, like, I've been wanting to save up for money and getting all these different things and I've been saving up so much but I've only been giving to the Lord not as much as I should have and he he keeps giving it to me but I don't deserve it I I haven't given as much as I should have I haven't done what I should have but yet he gives it to me and Mm. I just don't deserve it yeah so Levi you're seeing God's grace to you in that it's pretty cool thank you for sharing buddy I can really relate I think we all can let me close this uh, in prayer great discussion thank you guys for sharing let's pray
Father, I pray that you would just help us as a congregation just to see your heart for justice. That you are a God whose heart is so rooted in compassion and love that whenever you see the vulnerable and the exploited and the excluded and the powerless, that you are moved to draw near in the most costly ways. And I pray that that would come to shape us as your people because we have experienced that in Jesus. Let us be a church so rooted in the grace of the gospel that we are passionate about justice in the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.